you must be always in touch with who you are out there in the wilderness. You need to be aware of your limitations. You need to be aware of what you can do. And, you know, are you going to be able to take care of yourself? So it, it does sort of put you in touch with, like, perhaps those, the edge of things. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Every time I go for a hike, no matter how brief it is, I always feel like I'm going on a journey. And today's conversation with my guest, David Cruz, feels the same way. I always start my conversations with a map, a basic guide that I've devised for the the main points that I want to hit. But the fun of the journey, like when you're on a hike, lies in the happy surprises and the unexpected detours and the details that you can't know until you really get up close and get to know where you are and who you're with. This conversational journey took us to so many interesting places. We talked about relationships and striving for balance and finding right relationship with ourselves and with the planet and with each other. And we talked about how the story of our planet is one of love and loss. We also talked a lot about how to regain our faculties of presence and retreat in a time of information overload and how those faculties can help us to become more thoughtful and intentional about how we move through the world. David Cruz is author of Wander Thrush, Lyric Essays of the Adirondacks, and High Peaks, a poetry collection that catalogs his hiking of the Adirondack 46ers in upstate New York. He holds an MFA from Drew University and serves as poetry editor for the Platform Review and the Platform Chapbook series, both with Arts by the People. David is quite an expert on the Adirondacks because he spent two years hiking all 46 high peaks of the region. Wander Thrush provides really beautiful, thoughtful commentary on the history, the ecology, and the heartbeat behind this special bit of wilderness. Before diving into the conversation, I also want to say a special hello to Ruth, who sent me a very kind email this week, and I just want to say that if you and Ava Ray are listening to this episode in the forest today, I hope that you're enjoying your time outside, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And um, if anyone wants to stay up to date on new episodes, you can sign up for my email list on the website perennials.podbean.com and you can also follow along on the new Perennials Podcast Facebook page. Okay, enjoy the show. David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hey, Victoria. How you doing? Good. I have been sitting with your beautiful book, Wander Thrush, Lyric Essays of the Adirondacks. I have to say, in reading it, I just felt so transported. I actually have never been to the Adirondacks, but I've heard so much about how beautiful it is there. And and I just felt this like, oh my gosh, I have to get back into the woods as I was yeah. reading it. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Obviously, you're a writer and a poet, and you have this attention to the landscape and also to the words that you're using to describe it. And you talk about names and the roots of certain words throughout the essays in the book and you name you know the different mountains and you name the animals and the flora and fauna and you also talk a lot in the in the essays about the paradoxical relationship between humans and wilderness or the natural world and it's like naming kind of embodies that paradox because 
the name for something is a construction, right? Like it's not inherently yeah. meaningful. And there's like all of the social implications of who gets to name what and who is, who, whom these things are named after. Um, but the act of naming requires so much attention and the act of learning the names requires attention and having the recognition and the familiarity to see something and know its name is a product of presence and um, like a commitment. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the importance of knowing the names of the different living creatures that you're interacting with. I think it all began because of my map. So um, I have a map of the High Peaks Wilderness, which, you know, is waterproof. It's that classic National Geographic map. And you really can't go hiking in, the, in those mountains without, without that. But what I would find is that in between the excitement of, of hiking one time and wanting to go back up and visit the region, I would just be studying this map for hours and like planning new routes and, you know, where I'd climb. I'd be looking at all the names. And so I became sort of obsessed with, you know, just what is the culture and and what is the region through just simply what things are named. Um, so there's like a, a real rich history of that, you know. Um, with that said, I, I think it comes with some complexity too. A lot of the names we have are, you know, from white European settlers, right? right? Um, and so I try to address that a little bit in Wander Thrush. What's interesting is that a book that I found while I was hiking the 46 years was Russ Carson's book. And that actually became the first essay in Wander Thrush. And so he becomes obsessed too. In 1927, he writes this book when um, the 46 years had just become like a thing. Uh, these, these two young Marshall brothers hiked all of them in between the years of uh, 1918 and 1925. And so Russ Carson became obsessed with the mountains. And I'm guessing he wasn't like so much a, a kind of backcountry hiker. So his way of engaging this kind of rich natural history was to actually study, you know, the mountains and where they got their names from. And so I became obsessed with the history of it all. And, um, and it does come down to the namings of things. There's definitely like a serious connection. I talk a lot about like, you know, the names of birds and the names of the mountains and how each bird has a name. So it has a, a rich history with it, you know? Yeah. I think a name points to a story. Um, no doubt. Yeah. There's all these different characters who are involved as soon as something is named. I, I like how in, in one of the essays you, you talk about one of the peaks being renamed Grace Peak. So Grace, she was actually the ninth person and the first woman to hike all the 46ers. Um, so we're talking like, I don't know, I, I don't know. It's funny. I don't know the exact date of when she finished, but I, I want to say it's maybe in the early 40s or something like that. Um, but whatever the case may be, she went on for the next like 40 or 50 years to serve as historian of the 46er organization. And this woman, you know, she was so incredible because she would um, keep in touch with anybody who wrote the 46er organization. You know, eight, nine-year-old kids, um, other senior citizens, people, you know, in the middle of their lives. And they would they would talk about their adventures in the mountains. And some would talk about how they, they weren't sure if they were going to finish. And others would just 
I want to ask questions. And this woman wrote each person back, you know, with her typewriter at her, you know, dining room table. Yeah. She was really quite an amazing person. So, um, in 2014, literally the month before I finished hiking the 46ers, uh, they changed the mountain name to Grace Peak. Um, and I actually saw a really awesome exhibit at the uh, Elizabethtown, the museum in Elizabethtown, which is um, up in the high peaks. And they had a special, um, you know, special exhibit for Grace Hudawalski. They had her hiking boots and her backpack, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was really great to learn about her. You know, and then there you go. There's another name, right? There's Grace Peak. Yeah. And so that mountain comes with a rich history of who she was and all the lives she touched. Pretty amazing. Yeah. What yeah. do you think it is about the Adirondacks specifically that captured her heart and has captured your heart? There's like a, a real ruggedness to the Adirondacks. So like if if you if you're into really serious hiking, people know that the hiking out in the northeast of the United States is pretty intense. In the Adirondacks and the White Mountains, you can you literally can like come to a wall, like a cliff that's twenty feet high and you have to like scale it, you know, and like just kind of find your way up. And and sometimes it could be quite unnerving. In some regards, that challenge, the the physical exertion that it took was really exciting for me. Like I I found my brain needing to be continually engaged like every minute of the hike, you know, and to the point where when you were done, you were completely exhausted. And there was something I, I think in my own mind, I was looking for that. um, I was looking for just sort of being taken over, you know, in mind and body by an experience. But what's also interesting about the Adirondacks is that there is a real sense of wilderness up there. You know, like if you hike up in the White Mountains, which has comparable sorts of hiking and climbs and things like that, you'll find that the White Mountains are cut through and dissected by a lot of different highways and roads. So you could hike three or four mountains, uh, three or four miles up a mountain and do a loop hike and start at a road and come back to a road. In the Adirondacks, which is kind of wild, is that you could go seven or eight miles into the Adirondacks, hike up and over a ridge, and there are no roads, you know. So, you know, you have to climb back over that ridge just to get out. And so there, when you're there, it's just, there's a sense of, like, being lured, lured in by, like, what is wild and what is sort of untamed in some regards. Um and so I think that was the the draw originally. And then I just became, you know, entranced with like like the, the history and the people and the names and things like that, you know. I was thinking about the first hike I ever went on. Like I, I would go for walks, you know, long walks in a park. Um, but I never really went on a true hike until I think the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And my boyfriend at the time, his family spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. And he was like, let's go to New Hampshire for a weekend and we'll go for a hike. And I was like, okay, cool. I was completely unprepared. And he was like, we're going to hike Mount Jefferson. And I was like, okay, sounds fun. (laughs) Literally, my first ever hike, I was wearing a pair of Keds. 
<laughs> and I hiked like the hardest route up Mount Jefferson, which is the third oh, yeah. tallest mountain in the whites yeah sure that's a that's an intense hike there. and i was like on the verge of tears because oh, i yeah. you know i had <laughs> no idea what it was gonna be like and i just remember when i got to the top of jefferson being like wait all of these like metaphors about climbing a mountain and getting to the top of a mountain and like no one ever talks about how you have to go back down yeah, sure. Which is is sometimes the harder. Part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I remember no being doubt. like, "Uh, this has been very misleading." <laughs> like, yeah, there's um, there's like an intense aspect of being sort of like taken over, both in like like emotionally, you know, mentally yeah. and physically, right? Yeah. And and being pushed to those limits. Um. Yeah, it's some it's sometimes hard to know what you're getting into. <laughs> and now I mean like I love going back to the whites and um mm-hmm. like I have this love hate relationship with like my anxiety and hiking because kind of like what you were just saying about being like in the wilderness like I crave that and also and I crave like being like you said kind of totally taken over when something's really an exertion um but my mind will go to like wait we're in the middle of nowhere what if like one of us gets stunned by a bee and we go into anaphylactic shock like like, I just go to worst case scenario when you're in really remote wilderness (laughs) Um, yeah. do you find like total peace in that situation? Do you ever go like, huh, what if something really bad happens? Like, oh yeah, no, I think about what, what could go wrong all the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> in fact, um, like I think it's only like the seventh or so poem in high peaks. It's actually called trail confessions. And it's funny because I literally talk about this very thing you're, you're bringing up, like, <laughs> you know, oh you know, there are actually a lot of things that I worry about, you yeah. know, like falling off a cliff, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt. You know, honestly, you bring up something that's really interesting. You know, this idea that nature is peaceful, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is a bit, this is very much like a, a sort of modern construct, right? Um, you know, nature can be peaceful because we have the comfort of our homes, right? And our beds to go back home to. Right. But you know, when you go back to, you know, the romantic period here in America and, and pre, right, you know, nature was seen more as like, you know, kind of a, a kind of dangerous wilderness, right? Um, you had all sorts of incredible wild animals, right? You know, wolves and bears. So, you know, it wasn't a place you, you, you know, the, the consciousness at the time was not to think, oh, let me go out and, you know, find some peace in, in like a, a nice climb up a mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't waste your energy climbing a mountain because you'd have a, a farm field that you had to kind of take care of, you know. Um, so I think it's actually what you're talking about, this sort of survival mechanism that kicks in. I would argue that that's very much natural, you know, that that is because I feel it too. And I, I, and I honestly feel like people who are smart about going out into the wilderness or, or, or going on, you know, some of these extreme hikes, a lot of those people take it seriously. You know, like I, I hike with a, you know, a little emergency kit, um, you know, in there, I have waterproof matches. I have a compass, I have a pocket knife, you know, I have a headlamp, you know, um, if it's the winter time, I'm taking, uh, an emergency bivy, 
um, you know, candles and, and all sorts of things. Like, you know, you have to prepare for this idea that the wilderness is really not a place where like you were meant to really be, you know? Um, and so, but with that said, it does have sort of these transformative possibilities to it. As, as you mentioned before, you know, um, you can kind of reconnect with the land. You, you could have a respect for what the wilderness is, which is a place that could kill you, you know, um, with our modern comforts, with our air conditioning and our electricity, we sort of have lost that connection to the land, you know? Yeah. I think being out in the wilderness can sort of bring that connection back a little bit. Yeah, and it can also kind of put things in perspective because I think, I don't know about you, but as I mentioned, you know, I experience a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> running through my head at any given time. Um, and there's something about kind of like getting into your body and also seeing kind of what you're able to do and the journeys that you can go on and the way that you just kind of keep figuring things out as you go um, and making decisions as you need to and and figuring out when you might need to turn back, you know, like knowing your limits. And um, there's something about then when you go back into the comfort of civilization, <laughs> just having a new like gratitude for what you have at home, but also like a maybe a, a sense of like some perspective and like strength, like okay, like these these everyday problems that could get me really stressed out, you know, let's put it in perspective a little bit. I could be stuck in a snowstorm on the side of that mountain. You know? <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, right? I mean, it's a self-reliance, right? It's this idea that like I could take care of myself, you know. Um, I have supplies in the trunk of my car. My friends make fun of me. I have like spare clothes and, you know, I always keep my hiking boots in case I want to go on, you know, rip yeah, I always have somewhere. my hiking boots in the trunk oh, as well. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's so great. And, and I've got this, I got food and extra water. I feel like I could live out of my car if I had to for a couple of weeks. And <laughs> for me, there's a little bit of pride in that self-reliance. You know, the idea that the power goes out. I know how to make a fire. I could cook some food. I'd probably stay warm, you know, depending on the time of the year. Um, and it wouldn't be such know. a big deal, right? Yeah, it wouldn't. Not at all. Yeah. I, I think we also get the same perspective. Even if you simply go camping, you know, let's say you drive and you pack up your car with all sorts of cool camp gear and you got some nice food in your cooler and you, you drive to a campsite, but you're at that campsite, right? You don't have heat. You don't really have electricity. You have to, you know, chop your own wood. You have to, um, you know, or at least chop the kindling up. You have to start your own fire. You can't have coffee till you, till you make that fire. Like you, you're living sort of, you're living without the, you know, simplicities of modern life. And even something like that for me brings me a great deal of perspective, you know. Um, you're sleeping on a mat in a tent. It is definitely not a super comfortable sleep, you know. Um, and you make it work because it's kind of a cool experience. It's great to take the top off the tent and have that netting and looking up at the stars or, or hearing the owls, the screech owls in the middle of the night, you know, um, you can't get that, you know, or at least I can't get that here in Somerville. Um, so, but, the, but with that said, you're also going to have a hard sleep. So when you do yeah. come home to your bed, you know, you recognize you, you're more present with that bed yeah. and, you know, those modern comforts. And and that's what we should be doing, right? We should be appreciating those and keeping that in perspective, as you pointed out. Yeah. And I think like as a woman, 
um I I love when I go hiking or camping like just like being like okay I have dirt under my fingernails you know um and I'm not wearing makeup and I don't care what my hair looks like um there's no pressure to look a certain way right now although I will say and this touches (laughs) into something else um that's connected the lat the when I went I went for a hike in New Hampshire on my birthday a couple weeks ago and got to the top of the mountain and it was a really great hike and I got to the top and someone offered to take our picture and of course I had my phone so they take our picture and then I looked at it and I was like oh I hate how I look right now (laughs) yeah and I was like man I almost kind of wish I didn't have my phone with me or I wasn't taking photos because instead of being like wow I made it to the age of 28 that's awesome. I made it all the way up this mountain. I'm having a wonderful time. Like, it's so beautiful up here. And now, like, boom, I'm right back in, like, self-consciousness and, and no vanity. Doubt. No and doubt. you mentioned how you don't take your phone with you when you're hiking and you don't take photos. And, I mean, A, there's, like, the, are you scared something's going to happen and you don't... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no doubt. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um but then but also I mean I I read that and I was just like, you know, I I really think like more and more I notice it's something you talk about in the book like if if you don't share something, if you don't take a photo or you mm-hmm. don't share about it on social media, it's like it didn't happen or it's not a full experience. Yeah. Um so I'm curious to hear you talk about that that aspect. Oh, I could- I could definitely talk a lot about that. <laughs> By the way, even like even being, you know, even identifying as a as a man, like a cis white man, you know, I still feel that same pressure. I look horrendous at the top of, of <laughs> yeah, a mountain. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I sweat like you couldn't imagine. You know, my hair is all matted and weird. Like, yeah, I but feel don't that you same don't pressure. you hate those people <laughs> at the top who look like they just stepped out of a car? Yeah, I don't know how that happens. How do they do that? I don't know. I don't have that. I don't either. <laughs> you know? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it could be, there's definitely pressure. And you know what's interesting, Victoria, is like as soon as you feel, as soon as the moment hits where you realize you have to share something, mm-hmm. you know what's interesting is that you get taken out of the moment. Yep. And, yep. and that's something that I've been trying to write a lot about. You know, basically this idea of what it means to be present you know, both in mind and body, what it means to be connected to the moment. And I guess for me, you know, something I brought up in, in Wander Thrush is, uh, you know, for me, taking photographs often would like, I know it would take me out of the moment. Um, and it would probably do it for a couple of reasons, right? One is I'm not a photographer. So I know for me, I'm such a perfectionist. I'd be trying to get like that most perfect yep. photograph, yep. you know, and I, I'd be like not even paying attention to the actual hike, you know, but the other one would be, you know, um, getting a text message from a, I mean, you don't really get service up in the high peaks, but let's just say, right. You know, getting a text message from a friend, all of a sudden now you're texting instead of looking at the sphagnum moss. Right. Um, or taking a picture thinking, Oh, I'm going to share this. Um, you know, all those things sort of take, took me out of the being in the moment. So I just kind of, you know, I don't know. It, it's tough these days to stay in, in the present, you know. Um, 
I feel the pressure at times, you know, and I think leaving my phone was just a way of like, I want these hikes to be about the moment more than anything else. And so leaving the phone just kind of made sense, you know. I love this part in the essay about presence. You say, there are times when an emptiness takes over me. It usually begins the same way. No one's around. It's quiet. An urgency sets in. At first, it alerts me to something I forgot to do. Soon turns into something I should be doing, though I know not what. The sense of it seems big, daunting, like something that comes in sleep in a dream. You only get one chance at this life. Then it passes, and I begin to write. Mm. And I was just like, oh, man, I totally... You get that? I totally get that. Oh, that makes me so happy. I mean, I I think there's a couple of things happening. I think one is this idea that we're trying to disconnect from the world because the world's kind of overwhelming. To be honest, I do feel that way quite a bit. Um, I think there's, I think another side is also this, this need to like want to say something, but not know what it is you want to say, yeah. but you know, you know, you know what I mean? But you, you just feel this urge to, that you, you want to communicate something, but you, you don't quite know what it is yet. Yeah. And the thing is, is that unless you're present with that, unless you sit with that discomfort and that urgency, um, you know, you're not going to quite ever really kind of work it through. You, you'll never get to a kind of real honest moment with ourselves if we're always being sort of, um, if our attention is always being taken somewhere else, you know, we're not going to really get in touch with what it is that's sort of, you know, pulsing inside of us, right? That heartbeat, that, that spirit, whatever it is, it's like sometimes longing to get out, you know? Yeah. And I feel like sometimes we are, and I'm saying this as someone with a podcast, but Um, We're encouraged (laughs) to have platforms, but not necessarily to have the attention and focus and dedication to have something to really say. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Especially for younger people, I think it's like build up your, you know, create your LinkedIn and your blog, blah, blah, blah. But like, I feel like sometimes there's not as much emphasis on like, put your head down, follow your desire to to really get to know something that you love, like yeah. as you've done with the Adirondacks, you know, like there's yeah. so much, like you talked about kind of getting obsessed with things and it's like, you kind of have to get obsessed with something a little bit before yeah. you can like give your TED talk about it. <laughs> no doubt. Oh my goodness. No doubt. And, and by the way, I'm going to give you a defense for a second of this podcast. I think what's interesting, though, about your endeavor is that you're actually providing a platform to give other people voice, right? And I would argue that's one of the most noble things we could be doing as human beings, you know? The idea that right now you're allowing me to sort of, you know, share some of my experiences, like this is this is a very wealthy and valuable experience for me. So what you're doing is a very noble effort. Um with that said, though, you're right, though, like, just because we have a platform to speak and say things doesn't mean we should always, <laughs> you know, perhaps, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say, like, the funny thing is that, you know, five years ago, I felt like, okay, I, you know, I have creative impulses, and I'm interested in a lot of things, like, I feel like I should be channeling that in some way, like, maybe I should start a blog, maybe I should join it do an MFA program like but none of that felt quite right like it felt like for its own sake and it was it took me five years to sit with that and just be taking in you know like 
listening to different radio shows and podcasts and kind of slowly remembering like, oh yeah, I used to pretend to do radio shows with my brother with our little tape recorder. And like, what, where, when do (laughs) I I love that? I totally lose myself in listening to stories, you know, and always have. And, and I, and I never wanted it to just be me proselytizing about something. Like I just always knew I wanted to be a student learning from other people and just kind of ask questions that I feel like other people might have too, and just kind of share the learning. So the podcast definitely came from five years of sitting with like, okay, I have a creative impulse, but not being sure what to do with it quite yet. And you have a great vision for it too, right? You know, I think that's what you were saying before. Like it's only when we sit and we really sort of work through some of those things that we realize, oh, here's my vision, right? You know, a lot of people I would imagine just kind of create without having a sense of like what that is, um, you know, what is that vision? And by the way, that's fine to create yeah, without knowing absolutely. your sense of vision, but you might not share it all right, right. away. And there's going to be like, it's never going to be fully formed or realized. Like I, yeah. at some point I just had to start the podcast and trust that I would learn along the way. And some of that would be public learning because that's just the nature. You just have to do it. No doubt. But I think everyone has an inner sense of, okay, am I doing this from a place of like, what's the, what's the, what's my intention? What's the place I'm doing it from? Is it just wanting to talk to kind of make noise or is there really something that I'm trying to say? Yeah. I think you hit on it with that idea of intention, right? Like, what's that intention? If it's something that's good, if it's something that's meaningful and and that, you know, you can be honest about and it connects both your life and you think will connect to others, then that intention's, you know, going to carry whatever project you're working on, you'll carry that through, you know. And would you do it if no one ever noticed? Because I would do this if no one ever noticed, you know? (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. You know, to be honest, my writing life is more for like my own sanity than anything. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, you remember that passage you read before about that urgency? Yeah. Like if I didn't write, I would just be sitting with that urgency all the time. And at some point I'd probably lose my mind. (laughs) Yeah, I totally get that. Um, And on that theme of presence that you were talking about, which I did feel so much throughout the book. Oh, wow. That's cool. I almost never feel like I'm present in a given moment. I'm like, I'm Mm -hmm. not present enough, you know, Mm -hmm. or after something, I'm like, oh, I wasn't present enough. And sometimes I'm like, is it possible? Like, is it possible to be fully present? Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Do you ever feel like fully present in a moment? No, sometimes I don't. And by the way, that makes me feel like a total hypocrite because here I am writing about it, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard. I think it's totally hard sometimes to to be um, present, you know, all the time for sure. Like that's I mean, we're human beings. Right. And we live in a, a very complicated world. We're living in the midst of a, an information revolution. Like we're not going to be able to be present all the time. But at the, but if we have that checks and balances, right, if we're if we're keeping if we're keeping ourselves honest, you know, maybe we can acknowledge that there are going to be points where we need to say, put the phone down, right? Or we need to sort of disconnect in order to be more present because there's some really valuable qualities of the of a human life that's being lived in the moment, you know? And I, I think about some of my favorite writers like, you know, Henry David Thoreau and, um, you know, this and Baker and, 
I, I'm, you know, I meant to recommend a book for you before by Annie Laba Steele, an Adirondack writer named Woods Woman. Oh, it actually yeah. com- it comes up in Wanderthrush. Yeah, when I, I read a, another interview with you two where you talked about her and I was like, I have to read that. Victoria, you have to remember before when you were talking about when you were camping and you had the dirt under your nails and, mm-hmm. you know, there was a sense, a bit of a self-reliance there. I, I, at, at that time, I had this thought. I'm like, oh, I have to tell Victoria, you have to read this book. Um, basically, it was written in 1978. Um, Annie Steele gets married at a very young age. Um, she was working up at a, like a hotel in the Adirondacks and this older man who was sort of running the hotel um, she took like a, she, you know, really fell for him, um, hard and they ended up getting married, but then the relationship fell apart very quickly. I don't remember if it was the age difference or what, but she was crushed and devastated. So she basically just took off and went into the wilderness of the Adirondacks and she lived there for like the, almost the rest of her life. Um, she literally built her own cabin. She had a, got a, 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 um, a German shepherd and, you know, literally lived off the land all by herself. It, it's an amazing book. You would, I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, it's um, on my to-read list now. Oh, cool. Yeah, let me know what you think when you get to it. I will. Um, but yeah, but with that said, so I guess what we're just talking about, being pre- that you can't be present all the time, right? Or not even all the time, because I know yeah. that's impossible. But I mm-hmm. kind of feel like, especially in the moments when I really want to be, yeah, I find it difficult. Um, do you, yeah. yeah, like, do you ever <laughs> I feel do. fully present? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely, I think I'm more in touch with what it means to be present the more I write about it, mm. you know? Um, and so I do find that I have a lot of rewarding experiences where I'm being present. And I think for me, I think it's kind of threaded through my everyday life. Um, and I think it's also partly because my social media for the longest time was non-existent. Um, and, and even now, like, so I have an Instagram account, I have a Twitter account. They're both, you know, D Cruz poetry, but I kind of use them differently. They're not like a minute by minute play by play. Um, even, even tweets I send out that are sometimes poetic that feel like they're in the moment, they're actually like eight hours old, <laughs> yeah. you know, because like I already had the moment, but then I'm posting it later on. And I really just use both as a sort of creative platform to keep people, you know, engaged and updated as to like what I'm doing as a sort of writer, you know, creative spirit. But, but what's interesting is that social media platform is not like, you know, I'm not taking photos and then immediately posting them. And I think that takes off a lot of the pressure to have to always be updating people on your life, you know? Um, and so for me, I think that's perhaps the most important way to disconnect and start being more present, you know? There, on the on the flip side of it, I wanted to reference this awesome little podcast um, that came about. It was It was aired on by New Tech City, it was called Bored and Brilliant. And, um, and, it, and the title is uh, The Case for Boredom. And if you look up The Case for Boredom on Google, you could pretty much find it. Um, and basically what, I can't find the woman's name right now who is part of it, but she basically is talking about how, you know, um, we're never really bored anymore. You know, we're constantly, as you mentioned before, we're constantly scrolling we're constantly just kind of looking at tickers of information and, and photographs. 
And she tried to suggest that, look, this is actually a problem because boredom leads to really incredible things, right? It leads to creativity. It leads to ingenuity. It leads to um, pushing the boundaries of our sense of self. And she offers a couple of really cool anecdotes. The, the podcast is only about 20 minutes long, and I, I often play it for my students. But uh, it was it's really interesting when you think about we can both not be present on both sides of social media, right? It, we yes. could be not present with regards to sharing, but we could also be not present with regards to constantly just like, you know, updating ourselves Ingesting. on what's going on. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, I'll have to edit that out because I'm not giving any promotion to other podcasts. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm kidding. Um, no, it's funny because I feel like recently I've started posting more on the Perennials Instagram because I realized that I was always I was often on Instagram, like taking mm-hmm. all this stuff in, but never really posting anything. And I realized that was more of a function of my own self-consciousness and sure. kind of inhibition. Um, and so it's become kind of a practice of like letting myself be seen and like be a, be a full person and be silly or strange or, you know, like engage with other people. Um, but I have to like keep an eye on it because it's, it's not inherently all good or inherently all bad, but the way that you use it, you know, if I'm constantly checking to see like how many people have looked at something or whatever, then it, then it loses some of that positive you know, function and it starts to, yeah, really take you out of the present. But, but even when I like never posted anything, I was just often just scrolling through. Yeah. Well, you know, you point out something really great about social media, you know, that idea that we all can be a sort of creative self and have a voice, right. And that could be a little bit part of it, you know, that expression of the self, you know, that that's important. If it's not checked, you know, if it's not balanced, it turns into what, like solipsism, it turns into, you know, egocentrism, perhaps, right? So yeah, I think you bring up the idea that there is a sort of balance to it. Yeah, I think just kind of like there's a balance to um, having a full self versus being willing to lose yourself a little bit. Like when you go into the wilderness, you kind of lose some of your ego self a little bit right Mm -hmm. like you're not you don't have all of the trappings of your day-to-day life and identity you're kind of winnowed down in a good way but at the same time you have to bring like it is important to know yourself and to be a full self that you're bringing into that situation yeah and you know I think one of the other concerns about social media at least for me as a teacher of young people is you know, this idea that I think at the heart of it all, our sense of self should be something that comes from inside of us, right? I mean, at least that's what I was always taught. And and that's still a journey that I'm trying desperately, you know, to fulfill. I'm, you know, I just turned 41 years old and I'm still, you know, learning how to love myself truly, you know, in order to love another person perhaps or, or other people. And my concern is that th- this world of social media, you know, that sense of self is not affirmed or validated from the inside, but rather it's coming from, as you pointed out, you know, who's liking my stuff or who's who's tuning in, you know. Right. Um, I-, I think being out in the wilderness, you know, there is an interesting metaphor that you can connect those two things with, right? This idea that, you know, you must be 
always in touch with who you are out there in the wilderness. You need to be aware of your limitations. You could be you, you need to be aware of what you can do, but you need to always be present with this idea that, you know, you could run into trouble at any moment and, you know, what do you know, are you going to be able to take care of yourself? So it, it does sort of put you in touch with like perhaps those the edge of things, <laughs> you know, yeah. for you for each person. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because Oh, no, I didn't silence my phone, ironically enough. Oh, yeah. I just got that little text message <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> uh, alert. Let me put that on silent. Um, <laughs> so ironic. Just took no, me right great, out of the though. moment. You know, no, but that's great, though. That's like a, this to, This is like, you know, serendipitous in, in how perfectly it, it means so to like funny. acknowledge it, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's been something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, um, I'm the type to go really, to be very like extreme about things and like, I just need to be totally detached and like just shed my ego and, you know, like just not use social media at all and just be this floating whatever. But (laughs) (laughs) brain brain in a vat. Yeah. Like that's not really, you know, like we are, you, you mentioned in the book, we are, you know, we're, we are social creatures and um it's really it's it's too easy to want it to be a a zero sum game you know it leads me to think about the subject of retreat that you also talk Uh about in a lot in the book and you mention that you spent five weeks in a small house in the adirondacks in june of 2014 and um and i love that you say that let me read a quote. You say, while a self-isolation possesses its own healing properties, it still ends in paradox insofar as seclusion and retreat actually offer perspective on how to live with others. And I love that because it's something I've talked about on the podcast before, this idea of um, like contemplation in service of Mm -hmm. engagement with the world. Like you Mm -hmm. don't just meditate to be this little island of peace for yourself or whatever (laughs) yeah no doubt so i'm curious to hear about that experience of retreat for you and what you went into it expecting or hoping for what the experience was like and what you took away from it yeah well so i want to point out something else about that passage you read earlier about sitting with that urgency you know another Another way to read that is there's an urgency to connect with other people, right? Mm, there's an urgency yeah. to actually, you know, have something to say and want someone to hear it. So I think there's, you know, that points to something else you were just referring to. Like as human beings, we are, you know, we are social and we do want to connect with other people. Um, so with that said, you know, these ideas of retreat. I tried, you, you might pick up on this, but I tried to parallel the argument between we need to retreat from our environment in order to reevaluate the kind of relationship we have, because we are essentially, you know, killing and poisoning the planet. Um, so in one step, in one sense, we have to retreat from like, all right, let's think about how it is we're really supposed to interact with the, you know, our, the environment around us, the natural world. But I tried to parallel that argument with this idea of social media, right? Mm -hmm. We also perhaps at times need to retreat from our own perspectives. You know, we don't always need to be sharing our perspective. And in fact, I would argue 
in today's day and age where we have so much information to process that I would say that there are times where the more ideas that are coming out are only muddling the truth of things, right, in some mm. ways. Like, I don't want to silence people, and I'm glad that we live in a world where we have more people speaking than ever before. We have more un- underrepresented people speaking than ever before. Like, all of that needs to happen. But I think we need to recognize that it's also, you know, the more people who speak and share make it more complicated to sort of wade through it, right? Um, and in some ways, the information world the internet is a a deep wilderness as well. Yeah. So like when you spent those five weeks, were you completely alone? Well, I had my dog. Um, Yeah. And so, and I was actually on the property of Nathan Farb. Basically, Nathan had been coming to Thanksgiving at my uncle Andy's house on Staten Island for years. And I knew he was a photographer, but I didn't know anything about the Adirondacks. And so what's interesting is after 2012, when I became introduced to the Adirondacks, I saw Nathan that next Thanksgiving, and I realized, I was like, oh my God, Nathan, you live in the Adirondacks. And he's like, yeah. And I go, and you take photographs of the Adirondacks. And he's like, yeah. I go, I just started hiking the 46ers. And from that moment on, the rest of the night, he literally was showing me photographs, you know, like on his phone. And I'm like pointing out like all the places that, you know, like it was like kindred spirits. Right. So anyway, when we were talking, he said to me, he goes, you know, I have a a, like kind of little house on my property um, that, you know, my daughter sometimes comes to stay in. He goes, but it's it's not really being ever being used. And if you ever wanted to come up and do a sort of retreat, you know, you could have the whole little house to yourself. Um, And it's really it was pretty much like a a falling apart, like really big cabin of a house, you know? Um, but yeah, I took him up on it the summer I was finishing the 46ers and, um, I went up there with my dog and we were there for five weeks. And in that time I finished the five remaining hikes I had to do to complete, you know, the 46ers and I finished the poems. And then about a week later, I'd found Dave Donahue at Raw Press. And so I had a publisher already And I hadn't even left yet, you know, so I spent the rest of that time like, you know, reading through the poems and just being really present with this two year journey that I had just completed and and how much it sort of changed me, you know, and how much it it had enlightened me. What it was really good for me was it was a a bit of a change in my life. Um, You know, at the moment I had a relationship, a, a really long, important relationship had just ended. And so when I had taken off for the Adirondacks, I was not only, you know, bringing to a close this sort of hiking journey, but I was also bringing to a close a a chapter with a, you know, that involved a very important person. So it was like, I was kind of on a threshold, you know, like um, moving from one part of my life into another. And I knew that when I returned, I was going to have to sort of remake myself a little bit um, or, uh, you know, perhaps find myself a little bit again. So to have that quiet and to have that space to, you know, because I spent a great deal of time by myself with my own thoughts, to have that was perhaps more of like a recalibration, you know, than um, feeling perhaps any kind of urgency, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting because in the little bits of poetry that are in 
the essays, there's a you in the poems, and you mention just a couple of times, especially in that last essay, like love, like wanting to learn about love, and there's someone that the speaker is addressing. And it's so interesting because, you know, in the other essays, like you've got history and you're talking, you know, there's so much about the landscape and ethics and all of this stuff. And then in the, in the poems that are like, you know, you said you don't take photos, but while you're hiking, you're, the poetry is coming to you. Um, in the wilderness, when you're alone, there's, there's someone being addressed by the speaker and there's and there's thoughts about love yeah you know obviously wander thrush is is predominantly environmentally themed it's about a connection to a place but there is a little bit of that love theme that sort of sneaks its way in um toward the end of the book and i i just sort of give glimpses of it because um you know it it's really it wasn't meant to sort of take over you know, in the spotlight of the book, but it does play a role, you know, at the end of the day, I am a self sort of traveling through this world. And, and, you know, when I have those thoughts on the trail, I'm not always just contemplating moss and, and, you know, climbing mountains, but sometimes I'm, I'm thinking about the loss of people who have been in my life, um, you know, as, as anyone would, when you have time to be alone and present. So, um, yeah, that does. It's interesting that you pick up and you catch that because there is a little bit that sneaks in there for sure. Um, my new work, I have, so I have a new full length manuscript of poems, at least like, I want to say at least half of it are love poems. And then the other half are sort of environmentally themed, you know, if you will, love poems. Right. And they're all dealing with this sort of dialectic of love and loss. Right. Um, the love poem, the urgency that exists with the love poem is that loss exists in our world. And you can be madly in love with somebody, but at some point, you know, we all die. And sadly, some of us experience loss even while people are still living, right? We fall out of love, um, people leave. And so for me, capturing that that sort of dialectic in my poems, you know, in love poems, it's also that dialectic that comes through in a lot of my nature writing too, because we are witnessing a loss of this, uh, of a lot of our biodiversity and we're, we're experiencing a lot of the loss of our planet, which is the same planet that brings me a great deal of joy and love too, you know? So I feel like they're kind of, that's, that's where I'm headed, you know, some of the new work. Yeah, it makes total sense to me because that is the story of our relationship to the planet, I think, is love and loss. Our desire to want to experience wilderness destroys it. Yeah. Um, And sometimes like in love, you know, when there isn't freedom in love, you know, it can be using up someone's resources or trampling on someone's self. I'm still, Victoria, I'm still trying to figure this out. Yeah. Like, you can love too hard, man. <laughs> I had I had someone tell me that, you know, like, it's true. You, you can love so hard that you lose sense of yourself, or you could love so hard that you, you know, cause another person to lose a sense of him to herself. You know, like, yeah. there's definitely that. There, there's definitely that paradox there. And we call it love, but maybe that's not 
whatever it is, it's a longing, but it's not. Or obsession or something. Yeah, but it's not love. And it's like trying to find that balance of, of enjoying, enjoying being together without destroying yourselves. Um, It's like, how do you enjoy being with the planet, with nature, with wilderness, without destroying it? It's such a delicate balance. And sometimes it's like, is it even possible? You know? No Um, doubt. So I definitely see those things as like totally connected. As you could imagine, I'm a pretty intense person, right? Like I, <laughs> when I do something, I jump all in feet first. And so, you know, with love that could perhaps be, you know, sometimes we want to approach love with some tender care, right? And we want to approach the environment with some thoughtful care. Even my teaching life, sometimes my intensity, enthusiasm and passion can be so inspiring for so many kids, but at times it could also take over the classroom and not offer a space for some of those other students to mm. kind of be, you know what I mean? Yep. Some of the quieter ones who, who maybe are, are a little bit overwhelmed by it or they're a little afraid to jump in. It's that same sort of um, analogy. And I, I think the answer here is, is like you're touching on, you know, sometimes we do need to retreat. And I think we need to figure out what it means to have a balance, right? Um, you know, I think that's what Dar- Darwin could be, re- you know, revised, I believe, by um, some of some of our more modern contemporaries to look at, you know, the natural world is actually not defined by the survival of the fittest, right? It's not about survival and fighting, but it's more about balance, right? That the that the ecosystem it will evolve, you know, things will mutate and change, but it'll do so to find balance. And, and I think like that idea of being in balance with another person or people or with the land is like a sense of accepting a certain amount of loneliness and emptiness yes. that you're never going to be entirely filled up or, yeah. you know, you can't just attach to one other person and expect to feel totally happy all the time or yeah. to never feel alone again because you could be lying next to somebody and feel extremely lonely or you Uh, could be totally alone in a cabin and feel completely content right yeah yeah or almost completely intent maybe (laughs) no doubt no no I think you hit it I think you hit it right right on um and by the way there's something really tragic about what you just said to me and there's something that's incredibly comforting right yeah and and those things are sort of existing together, right? We, yeah. So wow. <laughs> yeah, it's like I whenever I write poems about that are kind of have natural theme, like animals or nature. Um, for me, it's often an exploration of um, something about reclaiming something of myself. It's interesting that you would go to the animal world for that sense of self. I wonder, like, what is it? Could you talk about what, where that inspiration takes you, like where that's taking you? I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. I think, um, I kind of mentioned before, like being a woman, you know, growing up as a very kind of like good little girl, you know, very like Victoria, you're so nice. You're so sweet. You're such a good little girl. (laughs) And there's just something about connecting to like a more primal kind of part that's like, yeah. Not always just good and sweet and nice and pleasing and but it's like, you know, 
something just kind of wild, something kind of yeah. hungry, something afraid, something angry, something um, in touch with desire. Um, yeah. 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 Are you going to hike like the Appalachian Trail one day? I kind of, I, Victoria, I'm <laughs> sensing something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You might pick up you know, put a pack in the car, take off for the airport, be gone for six months, you know, going on this pilgrimage. I don't, um, I mean, it would be a huge step for me. Like I've only really done like one legit solo hike and that was only like, that was only Mount Tammany. Um, which is a pretty short, that's a short hike. Um, yeah. Intense though, but yeah, but yeah, but, and so like, cause again, my anxious brain, I mean, I also Mm -hmm. think, um, the whole, and this is a whole topic for like a whole other episode. Um, (laughs) but like women in the wilderness, I feel like there's an element of the worst predator being like a man. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And that actually, that also comes up in my nature poems a lot. Like the predator prey and like, uh, the female body. And sure. And yeah. the way that the female body relates to the planet and the way that we treat the planet and the way that we treat female bodies is very similar. Yeah, no um, doubt. So I feel that connection to the earth in that way as well. I mean, if you look at, you know, our relationship to the planet, like, you know, number one is we're, we're consuming and, and destroying it because we're literally taking over the planet, right? What are we, like seven, over seven million people now, and we're literally using up, you know, our natural resources um, exponentially, right? But um, something else that you bring up as well is that a lot of people can't quite separate that nature's not a forgiving place, right? The environment or the natural world, right? that whole predator prey. Um, you know, just, just last night I was taking a walk down uh, the canal path and this beaver came out of the canal and he, and he wanted to go across the path and then down to the Raritan river. And, um, and his foot, his front paw, his front foot paw was like all messed up and he was really going slowly across the path and I'm watching him. And I could think that there's a lot of people who would immediately feel sort of this like tragic story, you know, being put around this animal Um, when in actuality, this sort of thing happens all the time. You know, there are animals that are getting killed, you know, Um, there are animals that are, you know, nature is not a forgiving place. And I'm not a woman, but I'm also um, I'm not a very big man. You know, I'm only five, nine. And I'm not an aggressive, uh, violent person. So I don't want for a second to claim, you know, in any kind of way that I would know what it's like to be a woman. There are times, too, though, where I feel very scared that I'm around very violent men, you know, um, because I, you know, I just don't understand violence. I, I don't understand how people can hurt another human being physically, emotionally. I just I, I don't understand it. But it happens, you know, so. And it's how we it's how we treat the planet too. Like I I see th- I kind of think of it as you know you there's a beautiful view and it's like okay I got to cut down all these trees and and Ugh, develop something yeah. here to take in this view rather than just let it be. You know yeah. it's kind of how we treat treat beauty. 
um, it's so in a lot true. of ways. And just like using and using for ourselves without considering um, how it harms the other. And then yeah. how because we are connected, it ultimately harms us too. Yeah, it's, it's a tragedy it, of the commons. Yeah. And that's, yeah, so you say our present day moral conundrum is how does one live when to use is to contaminate to speak is to strengthen the individual echo chamber to care is to further understand the tragic nature of a dying world. And you say our only recourse is to return to that world. Mm, yeah. I was wondering if you could yeah. expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I could. I, love that. Um, I know I, that's actually one of my favorite parts too. I'm glad that you picked up on that part. Um, I, I think what it means is to return being very present, you know, to return with a, a sort of presence of mind and body and what it is that each of us are doing in our moment, in our place and time. And are we, are we being violent toward one another? And are we being violent to the planet? Are we consuming or are we giving back? Are we nourishing the gardens? Are we planting trees? Are we um, actually giving tender care and affection to those around us? You know, there's two paths, right, that we can take as human beings. And the question is, what path are we on? Um, sadly, there's not enough of us on that good path, right? And so I think that's what I was, you know, that idea of we must return to that world with that kind of presence in mind. Um, and it's interesting that as that essay comes to a close, what's the next essay that comes, right? Presence. Just to reinforce that idea, um, you know, a little more carefully, perhaps, or with a little more detail and nuance. Mm. That constant relationship between retreat and engagement, right? Yes. Yeah, totally. That's kind of what it's about, right? It, it's ironic, but like the middle essay is about retreat, but then the very last essay, the presence and burning one is all about engagement, you know, and it's the same thing with social media, right? We're not, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be here suggesting it's, it's, wrong to engage people on social media but certainly it would not be a bad thing to step back for a week and reevaluate hey what am i doing with my life you know is this what i want to be? you know what i mean like that that's a good conversation to be having on that you know in in the interior world of the mind um and only when we can slow ourselves down and when when we can escape and get some retreats and get get away be in wilderness it's it's those times that allow us to sort of recalibrate ourselves and our place in the world. You can't always get away to yeah. the Adirondacks or go on a hike, but in your daily life, are there ways that you try to remain connected? Oh yeah. So, um, actually, so it's about, um, nine o'clock right now and it's still probably 85 degrees outside. Yeah. I had to turn <laughs> but, my air conditioning off in here because it's so loud and I'm like, oh, Ooh, it's starting to get toasty. <laughs> me too. I'm, I'm in the bedroom where it's quiet and, and it's also really hot, no doubt, but um, what I plan to do when we get off is to go walk the canal path in the dark. Um, and I tell you, I was there last night because it's kind of the only time I could get out for a nice walk when it's not too hot and couldn't really see anything. But I was hearing the trill of screech owls and I was hearing uh, barred owls off in the distance, you know, and, and the birds at dusk. So it's like, you know, there are ways to still kind of get little moments of, um, you know, some tranquility, some, some disconnect, some um, retreat, but then engagement as well, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I think little ways to do that, no doubt. Even just 
even looking for birds, you know, on a daily yeah. basis, you know, I'll sometimes just go outside and listen to some bird song and identify the birds. And then, you know, there's the American robin, you know, that bird's not around in two months of the winter. We don't see that bird, but otherwise, he, you know, that bird's there hopping through the grass and, and pulling worms from the ground. And I, you know, I think about its behaviors and I think about its patterns and I'm constantly assessing around me this larger system that's way bigger than me. And I'm constantly trying to connect myself into it through, you know, observation, through experience, through presence. You know, I find myself doing that on a daily basis. So in many ways, I, I think it's easy for me to sort of stay connected, you know? Yeah, I think this is coming very full circle. There is something so powerful about knowing the environment that you live in and knowing the names of like birds and trees and plants. Like it's something that I didn't even realize I didn't have any connection to until I was like in my 20s, you know. And and yeah, I, I moved to a house a couple months ago and um sitting on the back deck sometimes in the warm weather like we get so many different types of birds and my housemate put some bird feeders out and just sitting there looking watching the birds that would come and noticing how different they all were I was like that actually I felt really present yeah you know and the names of birds they're only a couple hundred years old Mm. and yet these birds have been around for how many thousands of years before that You know, and it's the same thing that I actually was talking briefly about before, you know, sadly, a lot of wander thrush and the history that comes up in wander thrush. And I try to acknowledge this, but it's really a white man's European settler history. Yeah. You know, Um, even the few references to Native Americans that come up in history and in the book, they're really they're really like given through the grace of a few a select few european white males but there's still european white males you know this is not the history at least in wander thrush it's not the native people's history you know uh, of america and that's been something that's been hard for me in some ways but it's also been simply my progression as a writer mm-hmm. um so for example high peaks right that's the first book and it deals with sort of just the joys of hiking with this new manuscript uh, with incantation. The full collection of poems comes in four long sequences. The first sequence is a prose poetry piece about sort of the Adirondacks and the natural history and the history. Um, I have some love birding poems in the second sequence. The third sequence is a series of love poems that involve um, some mermaid mythology. And the final poem sequence is a long praise song poem to our oceans. And what's interesting is what started off being a praise song to the sea ended up a poem about many of the major animals that have gone extinct during the Anthropocene, which is that period of natural history that um, in which humans have drastically affected the environment. And you want to know what's so interesting about that? Um, Victoria, is most of the animals that started going extinct, they started happening around the 14th and 15th centuries. And of course, what do we know happened around that time? Human beings started spreading all over the planet, right? European, white European settlers 
and colonists and imperialists literally spread around the world. And a lot of these species that had gone extinct were, um, they were specialist species that inhabited small islands. And what did European men do? They brought with them guns and germs and steel. And next thing you know, boom, you know, um, the Chadwick Beach cotton mouse is, is extinct, right? Um, or the dodo, boom, extinct. And so what I'm trying to do with this next book is I'm trying to highlight that um, the European history, the, the, the history of our world has been a history of violence and it's been dominated mainly by white European settlers. And so we could really trace back a great deal of our problems to that. And people need to be aware of that. You know, we need to understand our history, where we've come from. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to extend and give a voice to some of the history that I've been leaving out over the course of my studies, you know. Um, I love that. And I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's just kind of where I, you know, it's just kind of like what books I've discovered, you know, and what's around me. And, you know, I'm a... I'm a white kid from suburban New Jersey and, uh, you know, my education and my upbringing is going to expose me to certain things, but I'm continually reaching outward and beyond. Um, and I'm going to mention another book now, Victoria, that I've, I've found recently since Wander Thrush. It's called The Woman in the Mountain, and it's edited by a woman named Kate Winter. And it was published by SUNY Press, and I think, I think it was 1989. And basically, they are all women writers who have felt a deep connection to wilderness and specifically the Adirondacks. Mm. And the book is really great because it gives a sampling of like, I want to say like nine or 10 different women. It gives some biological history on who they were as people. And then it gives samplings and excerpts from their writings. And it's really, really beautiful. And I've discovered the book in my search because I was looking to extend beyond, you know, if you look at natural history, you hear about so many men, you know, explorers, men who were climbing mountains, you know, men who were discovering and shooting birds. You know, I, I said to myself recently, where are the women? You know, I want to find them. And, and I did. I found this incredible book. By the way, Annie Labastille's in there, too. <laughs> um, yeah, which is cool. So that's a that's a second book that I think you would probably really love. And I, I feel like it would you know, maybe increase a little bit of that urgency in you to want to get out, you know, I feel it in you, but, hmm. you know, wanting to get out there some more. Um, but yeah, you know, and then I think you'll see there's, this is just the natural evolution of things, you know, as people and as writers, I think we need to be constantly seeking the voices at the edge of things, you know, not just the mainstream voices, but those who are being underrepresented and, and I'm going there, you know, and I continue, I'm going to continue to journey to that wilderness. <laughs> I think what you're saying is so important and it kind of expands upon what we were talking about earlier about when there's so many voices coming at us with so many opinions. Sometimes yeah. it's about choosing which ones you want to give your attention to. And no right doubt. now I think it's so important to give our attention to those voices that have so often been ignored um, yes. by our dominant culture and like for us as white people, like, you know, who, yeah. have, who have we historically ignored or not listened yeah. to, not held space for. And I just yep. think what you're saying, you know, 
this podcast is about growing up. And I think what you're saying about being willing to learn and evolve and and even to say, yeah, it's public. Like our mistakes are going to be public sometimes if we yeah. are creative people who engage with the world, who put stuff out there. I know with this podcast, you know, like yeah, no doubt. I'm going to yeah. make mistakes. And the the important part is, is about moving, continuing to move forward. Um, yeah. And being willing to learn and be humble and yeah. um, curious and to see it all as like, that's the journey. We're all, we're all on a journey of learning and that's not it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us personally like yeah yeah well you know you bring up something really interesting victoria because it highlights a real conflict that i felt as a writer now in my 40s you know i'm a white cis male you know identify and you know in some ways i agree with you that we need to be seeking those underrepresented voices and part of me wonders sometimes if I should actually be retreating right, as, right. you know, a white man who grew up in suburban New Jersey. Like maybe people heard enough from voices like this and, and, and maybe I too should be sort of taking a back seat. I struggle with that sometimes because sadly, I, I, I create, I've been creating so much work just because as a person, if I had to stay alone and isolated with no one to talk to, I don't know if I would make it, you know? It makes me think of Brene Brown saying that uh, unused creativity is not benign. It metastasizes. Oh, interesting. Um, I think that I totally understand what you're saying because I have the same thought as a white Uh woman. Mm -hmm. And... I think that it's not so much about like, okay, so you don't create anymore. I don't think that would be good. I think that it's about the space that we take up. Can we decolonize our imaginations? Can we yeah. can we engage in conversation with different voices? Can we leave space? Um, and in person, you know, with people in our human to human connections, like yeah. what's the space we're taking up versus um, the listening that we're doing and the learning that we're doing. And yeah. The other thing is that I'd like to think of myself as a sensitive, nonviolent white man. And I think that we actually need white men to start speaking up and owning their masculinity yes. and, yeah. and owning their toxic masculinity. And I'm, I'm actually writing some, more, some of the most honest stuff. I've ever written in my life. I'm starting to embark on like, you know, a really incredible journey here personally. And I, so I think there will end up being a good place for me if I can continue getting to those honest moments about what it means to be a man and what it means to um, acknowledge, you know, the privilege, acknowledge the times in my life I've been violent toward others or toward myself, you know? And so I, I'm really trying to explore and investigate those parts of, of, of my, my life and my writing self as well. You know, Victoria, I wrote um, an op-ed piece for the record, not this past April, but for the National Poetry Month uh, the year before. It's, um, it's on my website under, um, under uh, poetry and media. If you scroll down and you go to places where it says prose, you'll see the op-ed. It, it's on poetry and honesty. And um, I, check it out. Let me know what you think. But basically what I wrote about was there was a time 
um, in MFA with my mentor, Ross Gay, wanted me to write about a time when I was not, when I was shitty. He said, when, write about a time when you were shitty to a woman. And he said, and don't mm. let yourself off the hook in wow. that poem. Yeah. He, you know, and basically his, the reason for this is because I was wanting to write love poems, you know? And he's like, okay, you really want to write love poems that matter? You want to get to the heart of things? Write a poem when you were shitty to a woman. And ironically, I wrote this poem and I talk all about this experience in, the, in that op-ed that I just like mentioned to you. But I basically, like, I kind of wrote this poem, but Ross didn't really care for it. I was kind of hiding behind metaphor. Um, I wasn't being totally honest. And it took me about 10 years to realize why he didn't care for the poem, because I was kind of hiding in the poem. I was hiding behind the metaphor making. I wasn't really getting to the heart of things. And, you know, interestingly enough, I then talk about a poem I did write about 10 years later. Um, I, I wrote it a couple years ago about um, something I did in college to um, a girl I knew, a girl I considered a friend at the time. Um, and I know that I was part of a, a joke that really hurt her. And I've had a tough time kind of letting that go. Mm. And so one day I started writing this poem and I literally was like hysterical crying as this poem was pouring out of me. And um, it got to the point where I was afraid to share the poem with anybody because I, um, I was embarrassed by my behavior. I was embarrassed by what I did. And um, I said to myself, maybe when I turned 40, I'd have the courage to publish this poem. Mm. And I mentioned that as well. And I give just a kind of glimpse of the poem in that op-ed piece. So it was a bit of a teaser, you know, it was a bit of like trying to let myself out there and put myself out there in an honest way, but being still very scared to do so. Well, I'm happy to report um, last year when I turned 40, I sent it to five journals. Um, it didn't get accepted anywhere, um, but I sent it to one more journal this past year and it's actually still out on submission. So I'm really hoping they take it because I do want this poem to be out there. It's, it's called Poem for R. I didn't want to name her, but I, I wanted this poem to be a way of sort of not just apologizing and letting go of the experience, but I wanted it to also be myself taking ownership over my masculinity and what men can do, as we, you brought up before. Um, and so I think I think it's kind of it set me off on a new path. I think a very important path for myself as a writer. And so a lot of my new writing is an attempt to bring all these things together. I'm trying to bring together my love, the love and tenderness that I have in me. I'm trying to bring in that toxic masculinity and I'm trying to make a backdrop of that natural world as a sort of larger metaphor. And it's interesting to see it all sort of come together um, in some of this new work. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a, just, it's a lot. Right? No, it's amazing. <laughs> it's and you know what's so funny is usually I I always ask at the end mm. the same question and you can you just answered it because really? <laughs> I oh, usually ask what's something that you're learning about or growing into right now. Oh, and wow. I feel like you totally we got there. Yeah. There's another question that's been in my mind a lot lately, so I'm curious sure. how it lands for you, which is what's something that is making you feel alive recently? Mm. What's making me feel alive? Wow. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work with the Northeast Wilderness Trust, 
And I ran a promotion this past spring. I was selling copies of Wander Thrush and I was donating half the proceeds of each of my books. And I was collecting some miscellaneous donations from friends and family. And in about a month and a half, I was able to raise $1,356. And this was an attempt to donate to the Northeast Wilderness Trust in order to help them protect a piece of wilderness in the Adirondacks, which was a very important wildlife corridor between two you know, publicly protected lands. And so in May, they ended up purchasing the property. It's called the Eagle Mountain Wilderness Preserve. And I was invited to go up and meet this small team of people, you know, who, you know, the Northeast Wilderness Trust, they're based out of Montpelier, Vermont. And they're, they're like a team of like five or six individuals, young, young kids, really, who, who are out there, you know, trying to like make a difference. Um, and of course, there are some other people from other organizations that are involved, you know, like the Adirondack Council and the ADK Land Trust. So there was all these people there, but they all had one sort of collective vision. These were people that cared about wilderness and they cared about the planet and they wanted to take care of it. And so what I'm noticing is for the first time in my life, I'm noticing that I have a real serious purpose of what it is I want to write about. And that has been preservation both of forests and ecosystems, as well as animal species and biodiversity. And I think people, you know, get put into that for me as well, imaginatively, right? Um, you know, taking care of individual voices. You know, I just turned 41 and I, I think I'm on a path of what I really know what it is I want to be writing about and what I want to be doing with my life. And so um, I think I'm headed for some big changes, but what makes me feel alive is that I think I have a purpose to my life that is that feels good. Mm. You know, so many of us graduate from college at 21 and we're distraught if we don't know what our purpose is yet. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And, and full disclosure, right? Let's be totally honest here. There are times I feel embarrassed with myself that I haven't arrived here, say, sooner. But... At the same time, you know, isn't that part of the evolution, you know, that, yeah. a, that a human being makes, right? And that perhaps my experiences right now would not be as rich and, and full of life as they are had I not sort of, you know, sputtered around and tried things and figured things out. You know, I think that's all part of it. Well, we can look at some people who, who maybe are on that path at a younger age and, and feel um, I don't know that maybe you could help me out. I don't know what that feeling is, but it's almost like, you know, I wish I, I knew like they knew, but, you know, perhaps we can just, um, look at them with a great deal of admiration and respect, but we should still continue trying to find our own, right. Our own journey or path. And I think there are people who, you know, maybe think that they know early on and then in, in, at the age of 41, everything gets overturned for them, you know, like yeah, yeah. it's just, it's different for everyone. And I, I don't yeah. think there's any shame in any of it. I just think we get one narrative of, okay, the dominant message is like, well, you should be getting on a track at the yeah. age of 21. And it's just silly because I just think it's, there are people who get on one track and, and then they hate it, you know? Like, yeah, so you're right. I, I just think it's helpful to hear you say 
what you've uh, said about not necessarily knowing um, where you were going the whole time, but like you kept following your your curiosity and yeah. that's what led you, you know, that's a theme that's come up in the podcast a lot is following your desire and yeah. curiosity without necessarily knowing where it's going to lead. Well, it's kind of you to recognize that. And I think you're right in what you're saying to you about, you know, you just, you follow that compass rose, you know, and, and sometimes we need to retreat a little, sometimes we need to recalibrate, but you know, if you're following your heart, and if you're being honest with yourself, I think at some point you're going to arrive. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Victoria, this has been great. I appreciate you, you know, having me so much on this podcast. It's been such a great time. I appreciate all of your time so much. And I loved reading the book and spending time with your beautiful essays. And oh. um, yeah, remind remind us where people can find you and your work online yeah i have a website david cruz poetry um.com and my last name is c-r-e-w-s and um and from there people can get information about buying the book um i have links online i the main link i like to um i like to to share is um it allows people to buy through IndieBound at the bookstore plus which is a local bookstore in lake placid new york and they've been really good to me um, so the little button on my website says buy on, buy local and online, you know, so you can still buy from a local bookstore, even online. Um, but yeah, so they could buy there, but also on my website, they, um, people can read, you know, poems, uh, they can read some of my essays and things like that. So there's, and there's also some recent, um, reviews, some recent podcasts that I've interviews I've done on, on North country public radio. So there's a bunch of different things people can check out. Um, and then as far as social media, I'm on, I'm on both Twitter and Instagram at D Cruz poetry, but yeah, awesome. that's pretty much where I am. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Victoria. Thank you so much for listening to the perennials podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.